again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, y'all. We're glad you're here with us today at Perimeter Church. Uh, If you were not with us last week, we are in week two of a four-week series out of the book of Hebrews called Jesus Outside the Box. And what the book of Hebrews is saying to us, what it is speaking to God's people is this, is that Jesus, no matter how you imagine him to be, no matter what you think he is, he is not something that you can stuff away and manage. He's not someone who is safe. He's not somebody that you can control. Instead, he is one who is greater than we could ever imagine, who is more glorious than we could ever dream. And that's the greatest news you could ever possibly hear. In Hebrews 1, last week, we saw a Jesus who in a world of doubt and in a world of confusion, he speaks the truth. He proclaims salvation to God's people. And what we're going to see this week in the same text The very same verses we're also going to see, not just a Jesus who proclaims that salvation, but a Jesus who accomplishes it. Here's what it says. Read with me now. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here's the verse for today. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we we come this morning uh, needing you. Lord, we come with with hearts that are distracted, with minds that are um, elsewhere, thinking about football games to come, thinking about the things we still have to do back at home, thinking, Lord, about things that are going on in our lives and in our marriages and in our families and with our friends. And Lord, I pray in every way at this moment, I pray through your spirit, draw our attention, not, not to me, but to your son. And Lord, I pray we would not leave this place without having come to a face-to-face encounter with the living God. Speak now. Take your word and make it alive in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to meet Anwar Congo, you would think he was a pretty friendly guy. He dresses nicely, he wears fancy suits, he tells jokes easily, he's always smiling, he's always got grandkids running around at his feet, and if he didn't drink and smoke so much, you would think he was the prototypical grandfather, just a nice old guy that you'd love to spend the day with. But here's the thing that sets Anwar Congo apart. From 1965 to 1966... Anwar Congo was hired by the Malaysian government to help them execute one of the greatest mass murders in history. A one-year span in which the government employed men like Anwar Congo to kill over 500,000 people. 
And to put that in perspective, maybe for you and I, that's the city of Augusta, wiped out in one year. Anwar Congo personally killed a thousand. He would put their heads in a metal wire, and then he would pull the wire tight until the life passed from their lips. And in 2012, Anwar Congo sat down with a documentary film crew, not just to talk about what he had done, but to show them how he did it. To go to each and every place where he had taken a human life and to show them exactly how he killed them. And not just to show them, but to act it back out so they could see how skillful he was. How he could pluck a man from his family while they were shopping and pull him upstairs and kill him, not only without his family knowing, but without any blood falling on the floor. He is a man seemingly without remorse, a man who seems to feel no guilt, a man who seems to feel no shame. In every way, the kind of person you would look at and say, that is a monster, not a man. That's not someone I relate to. That's not someone I can understand. And then in the very last scene of the documentary, suddenly this man who looks like a monster, suddenly he is revealed to be just like you and me. Because in that final scene, he decided that he didn't want to be the murderer anymore. He wanted to be the victim. He wanted one of his friends to put the noose around his neck. And he wanted to play the part of the one who died. But as soon as the noose went around his neck, and as soon as the camera started to roll, Anwar Congo started to weep. He started to convulse. He started to retch. And then he said, I wish I could make the memories go away. I think that I have done something terribly wrong. I think that I have sinned and I do not know what to do. And in that moment, the monster falls away and you are confronted with a real man wrestling with real guilt who is asking a very real question, who could possibly deliver someone like me? Who could possibly make me whole again after all that I have done? And as I watched that scene, it struck me that he's not very different than I am. He's not different from any of us in this room because every single person here, while we may not have killed a thousand people, we all have sin in our lives that we need to be forgiven of. We have all ruined relationships. We have all hurt people that we have loved. We have all had those moments when we spoke to our parents and the words left our mouths and we regretted them as soon as they did and we knew that as soon as they were spoken, no matter what we did, that relationship would not be the same. We've given our bodies to people that we regret giving them to. We have done things to people that we said we loved, that we wished we could take back, and we wished that we could restore. And what makes all of it so much worse is in almost every one of those situations, when you look back at those moments, those moments that fill you with guilt, that fill you with pain, they were not things that just happened by accident. In the moment, they were exactly what you wanted to do. Symptoms of a heart that is in the grip of something dark and evil that needs to be cleansed. And all of us find ourselves sitting with Anwar Congo going, I do not know where to turn. We try to smile it away. We try to act as though it doesn't bother us, as though it's not lurking around in the back of our minds. We try to do enough good to outweigh the bad. And maybe you even think that maybe if I put my head in the noose, maybe that will be enough. But for every one of us, there is that question. 
that little whisper in the back of our minds, we need someone to deliver us, but we know we cannot do it, so who will deliver? The writer of Hebrews, he is taking the face of God's people and he is lifting it up and he's saying, look at Jesus. You want to know who can deliver. Here is one who not only can, here is one who has. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those are some of the most beautiful words you will find anywhere in the Bible. Because those words tell you two things that should be very precious to every one of your hearts. And the first is this. It is that to you and I who are stained with sin, to you and I who do not know how we can deal with the guilt for the things that we have done, here is one who is our perfect sacrifice. He is the offering who has made purification for sins, and he is the one who sat down, never needing to do anything else. In Hebrews 9, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, here is the shed blood that requires no more. Here is the final sacrifice that does away with all of our sin, all of our brokenness, not just for one person, but for all who come to Jesus. And when you open up the Bible, this theme of sacrifice is everywhere. It's everywhere. In fact, if you are not someone who's grown up in the church, if you're not somebody who's familiar with the Bible, it can feel a little strange, can it? Because everywhere you look, there's the shedding of blood. Everywhere you look, there are people killing animals and all the while coming to God as though that's the only way that they could approach him. You know, I remember uh, when I first got into ministry, I decided to do an evangelistic Bible study with a guy and I thought the book of Galatians would be a great entry point because... That had meant a lot to me, and I thought, well, if it meant a lot to me, it'll be easy to translate to him. And so I was super excited. I said, read the first chapter, and then we'll get together at Starbucks. We'll sit down, and we'll talk about it. And I prepared all week. I was praying all week. I was all excited about what was going to happen. And then I got to the Starbucks on McGinnis Ferry, and I sat on the patio. And I remember this guy looking at me and going, dude, what in the world is circumcision? And all of my plans went out the window. <laughs> because immediately I was sitting there kind of sputtering, going, I don't know exactly what to say. And so I was like, well, it's, it's how God's people, um, it was the sign of their entry into the covenant community. And every male had to be circumcised. He had to have his foreskin clipped. Um, and if you, know, if you came to faith later in life, you had to have it done then. If you were born into it, you had it done when you were eight days old. And I remember him looking at me, and I'm going to clean up his language because it was crass. He said, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. And I remember thinking, well, that ruins Galatians, because I don't know how to talk about Galatians without at least using the word circumcision. It makes the Bible hard to talk about. But for a lot of us, we come to the Bible, it just feels foreign, doesn't it? It feels strange. And nowhere more so than with sacrifice, with the shedding of blood. And I think there's a couple things that we need to to, to get in our heads before we actually grasp why it matters that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. The first is this. While we may live in a world where sacrifice seems strange, we are actually the odd ones for thinking that. If you look back over human history and you look at other cultures and other religions and any place on the planet, sacrifice almost always is a part of worship. Because people seem to intuitively know the only way I can approach God, whoever is out there, is somehow by the shedding of blood. And that's not just true in the past. That's true right now. 
Uh, Just a few months ago, Dhaka, Bangladesh made the headlines because they had their annual month. Every Every year they have this. Their annual month of animal sacrifice. Thousands of animals are slaughtered. And it made the news because that momentous month happened to meet a flood. And the flood hit the blood of the animals and literally the streets of the entire city were flooded with blood. Living here in the Western world, we think that's strange. But I think it's important to get this. We are actually the odd ones. We are not the norm to think that that's strange. But secondly, we need to get this. You may think you disagree with sacrifice, but it's actually something you do all the time. Because what do you do when you damage a relationship? What do you do when you sin against somebody or you hurt somebody and you want to make that relationship right? You sacrifice, don't you? You sacrifice your time. You sacrifice your dignity and you go to them and you say, I'm so sorry, will you please forgive me? If you offend your wife, you sacrifice your money and you buy her flowers and maybe something nice. And the bigger the offense, the bigger the sin, the greater the act of sacrifice. Our problem is not that we disagree with sacrifice. It's that we disagree with the type. And the reason we disagree with the type is because we disagree with the depth of the offense. What the Bible says to each and every one of us is this. As it says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Sin doesn't demand a money offering. It doesn't demand a food offering. It demands death. And the reason is very simple. Because sin brought death into the world. When God told Adam and Eve that if you eat a fruit of that tree, you will surely die, it was not a joke. And as soon as they ate the fruit of that tree, death overflowed. If you look across the world, even right now, you see the horrors of the Holocaust. You see the horrors of your life in your home. You see the horrors that are there in your own life. And everywhere you look, no matter what time period, no matter what country, no matter what region, everywhere there is death. Spiritual death, physical death, uh, death in terms of relationships, death in terms of our love for each other. Everywhere we look, we see this death overflowing like a river. And what makes it all worse is we realize that that problem, that sin, it has to be dealt with. Because the only way that a good and holy God can be just and restore people to himself is what? Is if sin is put to death first. The sin that brought death, it has to be put to death. Otherwise, we can never be made whole. And what should trouble all of us is that sin, it's in us. Because what is it we said at the very beginning? All those things we look back on and we say, I wish I hadn't done that. In the moment, you wished that you did. There is something in our hearts that has to be dealt with. There is something in our hearts that has to be put to death. And the death that sin demands, it is our own. And that's what makes sacrifice so absolutely beautiful. Because when you look in the Old Testament... Who is it that makes the first sacrifice? It's not man. It's God. In Genesis 3, right after man sins, 
God comes to Adam and Eve where they're hiding in the thicket with their fig leaves covering up their private parts and trying to cover their nakedness. And God comes and he calls them out. And he says, you have broken my covenant, but I'm going to restore you. I am going to make you whole. I'm going to send one who is the seed of a woman who will crush the serpent's head, who will destroy sin once and for all, but not yet. And then he sends them out of the garden. And have you ever noticed what the last thing that God does before he sends them out of his presence? He kills an animal and he clothes them in its skin. He is saying, here is the death you deserve. Here is the death sin demands. But I'm going to accept the death of another. And one day I will bring you home. And one day I will restore you, not just in part, but in whole. And every sacrifice, from that one until the day that Jesus died, every one of them was offered in the hope that that promise was true. That the blood that was smeared over their doors in the Passover, that the the sheep and the goats that were sacrificed in the temple, that they spoke of a God who said, here is the death you deserve, but I will accept the death of another. I will not demand your own. I will not take it from you, and I will restore you. And so every year, they came and they offered them. But with every sacrifice, there remained that one large problem. None of those sacrifices were ever enough. There was always that not yet. There was always that realization that a sheep or a goat or a bull or an ox, it was never going to be enough to atone for the sin of a man. That in a world where sin overflows more and more with every passing day, a death was required. A death of infinite worth that could finally atone for a world full of infinite sin. And so every day, as it says in Hebrews 10.11, the priests would stand at their posts and they would repeatedly offer the same sacrifices, none of which could ever actually deal with anyone's sin. And that's what makes Hebrews 1.3 so glorious. Because this priest, after making purification for sin, he doesn't remain standing, does he? He's not repeatedly offering the same sacrifices. What the text says is he sat down. Because there were no more sacrifices to be made. There was no more shedding of blood that needed to be done. Because a life that had infinite worth, not just a man, but the one who was God himself, the radiance of the glory of God, the very imprint of his nature, he had made the sacrifice. He had become the sacrifice, and infinite sin had finally been met by a life of infinite worth. And it is such a sacrifice that no more ever needs to be made. The God who made the first sacrifice, he made the last one. It's a theme that the writer of Hebrews revisits in Hebrews 10. And he's looking back over all the sacrifices that have been offered, all the blood that has been shed, and he is looking at Jesus, and he's realizing all that it is that God has done, that God has been speaking of this sacrifice before Jesus ever came in human flesh. That in Psalm 40, When the writer of the psalm is saying, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, he's talking about God the Father. 
That he's not thirsty for blood. He's not thirsty for sacrifice. He's thirsty for redemption. He says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body. And this is Jesus speaking. A body you have prepared for me. He's saying the will of God is this. It was that the Son would have a body and the Son would die in the place of sinners and the Son would finally atone for the sin that man has committed because he himself would have become a man. And what is beautiful is the Son is the one in the very next verse who says, and behold, I have come to do your will. And Hebrews 10.10 closes it and says, by that will, by that will, We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. In the person of Jesus is the sin, is the death of the sin that brought death. In the person of Jesus, you and I, we find the God who made the first sacrifice. He has made the final one and there are no more sacrifices to offer because he sat down. He is not a partial sacrifice. He is not a sacrifice that wipes away some sin but not all. He is the perfect one. And he is the sacrifice for you and for me. I mean, this is the reality that sits at the very heart of the Christian faith, isn't it? It's why Martin Luther, when he came to Hebrews 1.3, he says, in this verse, it is the supreme mercy of God that the writer commends because before we ever confess our sins... Already he has forgiven them. Before we ever open up our hearts and say, God, here is what I have done. Already in Christ, there is a sacrifice that atones. There are some of you in this room, you think you have out the grace of God. You think you have done things that are so appalling, so dark, and so broken. There is no way that Jesus could pay for your sins. You think you are outside the reach of God. That maybe his death was enough for others, but not for you. What the writer of Hebrews would say to you is if this death, if this sacrifice is enough to bring down the entire sacrificial system, if it is enough to say that there is no more need for the shedding of blood, not just for one man, but for all that Jesus has come to save, then what could possibly make you think that your sin, the sin of one person, could possibly outsend that grace? There are others of you here who you're like me. These are truths you've believed. You know them in your head. But in your heart, you're still restless. You still come back to those same things for which you feel guilt over. Those same sins. You look at the things that you did last night. You look at the things that you do today. You see the sin that just seems to overflow. And you wonder, could he really have paid for all of these? And is there a chance, is there a chance that maybe at some point Jesus will say, you sinned a little too much, you've gone a little too far, and my blood is no longer enough? Here's the beauty of this text. The writer of Hebrews says, well, you may be restless. Jesus isn't. He's not pacing. He's not wandering around going, oh, I wonder if my blood will be enough. I wonder if his sacrifice will be accepted. He's sitting down. Because before you were ever born, before you were thought in your mother's mind, God in eternity past chose you for himself. 
And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, offered the perfect sacrifice that atones for all of your sin. There is nothing left to do. Jesus is the one who says to you, I am the death you deserved. But God has accepted the death of another, and I am dead for you. You have only to come. You have only to lay your needs and confess before me your brokenness, and I will heal you, not just in part, but in whole. And that's not the only truth in this text. Because this Jesus, he's not just the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect priest. Notice what it says here. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What's at stake here is not just the nature of the sacrifice. It's the nature of the priest who offers it. Because where is this priest? He is at the right hand of God. The right hand of the majesty on high. If you live in Augusta, uh, like I did the past four and a half years, there's one place that everybody wants to go, and that is the National. You, you want access to this particular golf course because it is one of the most glorious, beautiful places on God's green earth. Um, and it is hard to get into. Uh, you have to be a president or a, some kind of very special person to get on that course. And so if you have a chance to get on that course, you do it by hook or by crook. And I got an opportunity my first year to go onto the course, the National. I got a job where my job was basically I would take this chair, this folding lawn chair, and on the week of the Masters, that's the big tournament that's in Augusta, if you guys don't know, it's one of the biggest in the world, I would take that chair and I would go through the gates early in the morning and I was to take it and sit it down at a certain hole, unfold it so some businessman or dignitary or somebody that was blessed enough to have a pass could later in the day come and find their chair already prepared for them. Now, I got to see the course, and it was glorious. Uh, it was as beautiful as anything you see on the TV. The grass was pristine, all cut to a perfect height. The trees were perfect. There weren't any limbs that were broken or even limbs lying about. There was no trash anywhere, which sounds awesome but is kind of unnerving if you're not used to it. And when you step onto that course, all the sounds of the city go away. You just hear birds chirping, people whispering softly. But as beautiful and as glorious as it was, the access that I had was limited access. I could see the course, but there was no golfers, there was no tournament, and as soon as I finished my job, I had to leave. My buddy Clifton had a very different experience, because where I got a job, somebody gave him, and I mean gave him, a pass, not to the practice rounds of the Masters, but to the final day. And when he went on that course, it was not silent. It was not uh, unfull of people. It wasn't, there, was no, there, was a turn, there was actually a tournament going on. There were golfers walking around. And when Bubba Watson in 2014 sank the final putt on the final hole and bent down to put his hands on his knees to weep because he could not believe that he had won, if you look at the picture that ESPN.com put up on the main website right behind Bubba Watson in a black shirt with his arms over his head and a grin from ear to ear is my buddy Clifton. (laughs) 
He is, his access was of a completely different kind. I got on for a moment, he got on, and he was on the green for the final putt of the Masters. When you look at the Old Testament and you see the priests, you are seeing the means that God appointed to give his people who were sinful and broken and had been cast out of the garden, they were the means by which people had access to God. They were the ones who made the sacrifices. They were the ones who interceded for you. They were the ones who carried your cares before the throne room of grace. But whatever they had, all of it was limited. It was limited by their person because they were mortal and they would die. It was limited by their sin because they were a sinful people too and they were dealing with their own junk just as much as they were dealing with the people's junk. But not only that, their access was limited because they only on one day, once a year, could send one man by the blood of many sheep and many goats into the place where God's presence was supposed to dwell, the Holy of Holies. And even then, once that man went inside, he was only there for a moment, and then he had to leave. They had access, and it was glorious, but it was not enough. The writer of Hebrews says, that's not this priest. He says, this priest who makes the sacrifice, he sat down. And I know I've spoken on those words before, but those are more than just a statement of a completed act. Those are among the very first words of Psalm 110. A psalm that is so important to the book of Hebrews that if Hebrews was a skeleton, Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 with it, they're the spine. They are what supports the entire structure of the book of Hebrews. And it's a psalm that says that when Jesus comes, when this Messiah comes, he will be not only a king that is greater than David, which we're going to get to talk about next week, but he's going to be a priest far better than any you've ever had because he will have better access. He's not going to be a priest who dies. He's not going to be a priest who has to deal with his own sin. This is going to be a perfect priest, a priest not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. A priest who will remain a priest by the will of God the Father forever. And where is the priest located? He's not in the Holy of Holies in the earthly temple. He is at the right hand of the majesty on high, never to leave. A priest forever. A priest who atones. A priest who pays for our sins. And a priest who carries the people of God into the very presence of God. And restores them to all that was lost in the fall. A Jesus who gives every one of us who comes to Jesus access to the Father, not in part, but in whole. Jesus is not just the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect priest. And he is the one who saves. In 1945, Henry Gorecki, a Lutheran pastor from St. Louis, Missouri, was given a job by the United States military to be the chaplain for 24 men on death row. He would go into their cells, and he would bring with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would say, I know of a Savior, one who can atone for even for your sins, who can make you whole, who can wipe your sins clean. I know of a priest who can carry you into the very presence of God, no matter what you have done, one who can save you, not in part, but in whole. 
He would read with them from the Bible. He would pray with them. He would invite them to come and take communion if they could just say, Jesus, save me. And some of them heard him gladly. Some of them heard him and said, this is something that I want. Others heard him and said, you know what? I don't want to be around you. I don't want to hear any more of this. Just leave me alone and let me die. And then there were others who they heard him and they listened to him and they were polite. But they just could not believe. They just could not get themselves to say those words, Jesus, save me. And there was one man in particular who weighed on Henry Gorecki's heart. A man named Herman Goring. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because it should. Herman Goring was Adolf Hitler's second in command. Herman Goring was a man who not only planned the Holocaust, he executed it. He was the head of the Gestapo, the head of the Luftwaffe. He was a man who would not say, Jesus, save me, because in his very own words, he said, I don't want to owe my life to just another smart Jew. This is a man that we would all look at and say, here is someone who seems beyond all hope of redemption. Here is someone who is so stained by sin, who has committed such a crime, who could possibly save him? The night before, Herman Goring was to be put to death. Henry Gorecki and some of the guards were watching a baseball game down the hall from his cell. They were trying to take their minds off the fact that of those 24 men, 12 of them were going to die in the next 24 hours. And as they were watching that game, they suddenly heard shouts from the end of the hall. Shouts that Goring was convulsing, that something was wrong. And so Gorecki threw down what he had in his hands and he ran to the cell and he flew open the door and he came inside and on the ground, convulsing and spasming, was Herman Goring with a cyanide capsule with its contents still dribbling down his cheek. And as Goring died, as he was breathing his last, Henry Gorecki got on his hands and knees And he took his head in his hands and he whispered in his ear, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. Now why would he do that? Why would he offer that kind of a hope to a man who had committed such atrocities? To a man who to his very last breath seemed as though he was opposed to everything Jesus stood for. To everything that was good. To everything that was holy. It's because while we have no idea if Herman Goring came to Christ. Henry Gorecki knew this. That if he had, there was a Jesus who was sufficient to save even him who could take the stain of sin that so permeated that man's life and wash him white as snow, and who could carry him, even with the cyanide capsule still dribbling down his cheek, into the very throne room of the living God. Brothers and sisters, this Jesus, he is greater than we can imagine. He is more glorious than we can conceive. He does not fit in our boxes but aren't you glad that he doesn't? Because here is one who can save, not just in part, but in whole. And it is that perfect sacrifice and that perfect priest who calls every one of us 
all who have sinned, all who have fallen short of the glory of God, and says, come to me. Come to me again and again and again and again, and everything you need, I will provide. This is one who doesn't just speak of salvation. He accomplishes it. And pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of a God like you who so thirsts for redemption that you would even send your own son. Lord, of a, of a son who so loves his father and so loves his people that he would say yes. And of one who offers himself to broken sinners and says, come to me and I will make you whole. Come to me and I will wash you clean. Come to me and I will carry you into the very throne room of grace. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would draw us there forcefully, powerfully, through your spirit in a way that changes us both inside and out. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.